Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Hey everybody, it's Dr. B again. If you haven't listened to part one of COVID chaos, anxiety, depression, and suicide during a pandemic, go check it out. This is part two. You're gonna learn a whole bunch of cool stuff but really want people to focus on suicide prevention is not prediction. There's a big difference there. So if you wanna learn more about that, check it out. Part two, COVID chaos, anxiety, depression, and suicide during a global pandemic. All right, suicide. This is a very, very difficult and painful topic to talk about. I have personally experienced suicide way, way more than I care to even talk about. But as I say the word, you know, a number of of people in my life, um, their pictures pass through my brain. And a couple of them I was with the night before, and I'm a clinical psychologist. So prediction is not a thing when it comes to suicide. You cannot predict violence and you cannot predict suicide. Having said that, what we can do is implement prevention strategies, which then don't necessarily tell us that we're when we've saved somebody's life, unless they tell us, but it does reduce the likelihood of of somebody attempting or completing suicide. So please know that we cannot predict suicide. It's not your fault. If somebody that you love completed or attempted suicide, it is not your fault. You can't know that. The signs are very confusing and There's just, the brain is not that precise in order to pick that out. You know, if you just happen to be lucky one day, you might, you you just can't, you you can't predict it. But there are preventative strategies, and that means talking about death. We are a culture that is so terrified to have any conversation about end of life. And particularly death, whether it's violent or whether it's cancer or a disease or illness. So again, (laughs) welcome to chaos 19. I mean, chaos. Welcome to COVID-19 pandemic chaos. We are not comfortable talking about death. We don't understand death. We don't understand end of life. And so... Dealing with a pandemic that includes so much death and so much dying and so much illness send our anxiety and our depression just off the charts. So we also need to talk about suicide and what does suicide mean and how does that happen? And and people want to know details 
And it, you shouldn't just jump into somebody's story and say, oh, well, how'd they do it? Or when did they do it? Or what were the circumstances? And da-da-da. Who was there? Who found them? All of these things are very intrusive questions. But there are ways of having these conversations with people close to you if a suicide does occur that are appropriate and allow for there to be the disper the the dispersing of energy and emotion that actually helps people to feel better. So we could talk more about that in an episode as well. Don't guess what people are feeling. Ask them. Just say, I'm really worried about you and I'm worried that you might be feeling like you want to harm yourself or, you know, are at risk of suicide. Is that is that true? Because I'm here for you. It's that simple. It's that simple and it's that terrifying because I can't imagine, you know, all of us walking around saying that to people. But in reality, that is what we need to say to people. I feel like you're you're in you're experiencing some depression. And, you know, I just wanted to open the door and have a conversation if, you know, if, if you want to. And, you know, maybe they'll say like, no, I'm just my brain's off over here and this is going on. Or maybe I think, are you kidding? I'm not talking to you about my depression. I don't even know you. Fine. That's appropriate. We want to share those deep emotional feelings with people that we have emotional relationships with, which is why we build and develop emotional relationships with people that are based on more than just a Facebook friend request. Here are some staggering numbers about suicide. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. It's the second leading cause of death between babies 10 years old and 34-year-olds. My youngest son, I mean, my oldest son is 33, so that number really kind of rattles my cage. There are two and a half as many suicides in the US annually as there are homicides. So you're way more at risk of dying at your own hands than you are at dying at the hands of somebody else. And so is everybody else. So think about that for a minute. When you're setting the stage for what do I need to be afraid of? I need to be afraid of my own, not afraid. I need to be aware of my own mental health because it can turn on me probably a lot faster than somebody else is gonna turn on me as a stranger. In the U.S., United States veterans are four times more likely to die by suicide than in combat. Okay, that's a failure in our military service system, and I know that there's a lot of attention and work in that area, but we have to do better. We can't ask people to come and serve our country and fight for our freedom if ultimately that's going to cost them their lives at their own hands. They've already offered their lives at the hands of others in combat to fight for our freedom and our liberty. Now we we can't expect them to manage those that level of commitment and emotion and anxiety and frankly post traumatic stress. We can't. That's too big of an ask. That's just too big of an ask. One in every forty five seconds. So think about this in the in the in the time we've been in this uh, webinar. More than 45 trans youth have attempted or completed suicide. Sit with that for a minute. 45. That's a horrible, staggering number. And I'm going to say it again. If 
you are a person or you know a person who rejects people for their gender identity, then the problem sits with you. It does not sit with the trans youth. Being transgender is a thing. It's real. It's scientific. Do we know a lot about it? Yes. Do, does the general public understand it? No. So if you know somebody who is in the universe struggling with their gender identity, be a person who can help not hurt because rejecting is harmful. And it's every single person's responsibility to make that not happen. 1,920 trans youth die in one day, 24 hour period or complete, attempt or complete. They don't all die, but they attempt or complete. That's a staggering number. If you know a trans person, they are at risk. And if you can, it's a, a sweet blessing for you to reach out and be a loving support for them. 18 veterans die by suicide every day. That alone is a staggering number, and it, it doesn't even touch the trans youth. And I'm still not okay with 18 vets dying a day. You may or may not know this little guy. His name is Larry King, and he actually attended the school district that I attended for four years when I was a young when I was in elementary school. And he's he identifies as trans and lots and lots of aces with this kiddo. However, what we do know is that social media gets a big headline of, you know, it's the cause of depression. But it's not really the cause of depression. What we need to talk about is social media in the context of depression. Because and in the context of a pandemic. So there is research and science that indicate that one, 72% of US people use social media. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna just quit social media because they listen to a one hour webinar today. So we have to integrate how we use social media to reduce depression, not that we just get rid of it. Social media is an incredibly powerful and amazing innovative communication tool. We don't want to get rid of it. It's not a bad thing. It's just used poorly in a lot of situations. We have to find efficient ways to stay connected during a pandemic. And social media is one of those very efficient ways to stay connected. But we also have to take into consideration the harm. Social media does allow for people to learn new information, to be part of support groups that are globally, that have global membership. I have a friend who has a child with type 1 diabetes, and she's part of a type 1 diabetes parent of children with, I mean, parent of children with type 1 diabetes support group on Facebook. And I tell you, it's, you know, been such a, a blessing for her. There are also cons to social media, which we hear a lot more about. They disrupt our sleep routine and sleep is so critical to depression. You need to have good sleep in order to not feel depressed. And a lot of times 
Depression is one of those things that comes and goes and suicide slips into one of those periods where there's a deep dive in depression. So sleep routines are important. Out of 6,018, 10 to 18-year-olds, 50% of them experience cyberbullying. The problem isn't not necessarily the social media as much as it is the bullying. We need to teach people to not be bullies and not allow them to bully people online. However, this is a problem, so we need to attack it in innovative ways. People use social media, people who use social media more than two hours a day, and let me define social media as like Facebook, Instagram, all of those social things, not the internet to get information. Not like this is not social media that we're participating in right now. They rate their own mental health as fair or poor. There is a thing, FOMO, fear of missing out, compulsive checking of social media, you know, what are people saying? Did they like my picture? That feeds into our self-esteem. And when people start prioritizing social media over personal engagement, which will be a thing as we begin to come out of pandemic because people have social anxiety around people now because of being isolated and cooped up for so long. It's like I got a puppy during COVID and I call it, you know, he's a COVID puppy because he does, he's like terrified of all people other than us. So, and dogs and everything. He's just, you know, different. (laughs) So, and that's going to be a thing and we're going to deal with it, but it's not unmanageable. All right, let's talk about adverse childhood experiences and the COVID-19 pandemic. It is like the perfect imperfect storm because adverse childhood experiences all on their own set the stage for anxiety, depression, and possibly suicide. There's a correlation linked the more aces you have, the more likely you will to su- you are to suffer from these three things. Add a global pandemic, and it just maximizes all of that. Global pandemics, remember we talked about uncertainty, and we don't like uncertainty. We'd rather have pain. A global pandemic is the definition of uncertainty and isolation, quarantining, masks, social distancing, staying home from work, staying home from school, all of those things. It's an added stress, which is also a contributor to depression and anxiety and lack of sleep routines. Because when you're in your house all day doing kind of, you know, it just all blends together. So our, our sleep routines can get thrown off, which means you really need to consciously plan your sleep routines. And then there's a lot of anxiety around essential needs like housing, food, childcare, medical care, social supports that become in a pandemic impacted and we have to learn and think about new ways. And everybody's learning and thinking and trying to implement new ways at the same time, which does what? It just causes more uncertainty, more chaos, more confusion, which leads to more depression, more anxiety, and potentially higher rates of suicide, which we have seen. So, you know, this is the imperfect storm that we want to get a handle on and face and move forward as we learn more about what's happening. At the same time, we're having this storm of COVID-19 triggering trauma, adverse childhood experiences. We're unearthing the depth of implicit bias in our culture 
and in our social justice experiences in our communities and in our world. So there are lots of shifting generational differences that will actually, millennials are much more open to diversity and differences. However, we're kind of in a battle at the moment and this the this pandemic and the workforce battle are just amplified. That's an entire, there's a generational class on the academy. I can't go into all of that right now, but it's it's really interesting how generational differences view everything. <laughs> But we're experiencing Asian hate. We're experiencing Middle Eastern hate. We're experiencing there's Black Lives Matter movement that's that's come into our landscape, which is so great, and at the same time is creating a lot of violence and but good good conversations. There's LGBTQ rights and rights being taken away all at the same time. So this also causes a lot of stress, particularly if you are part of one of these marginalized groups, or if you just care very deeply about all marginalized groups. It is also very stressful to think, oh my gosh, this is happening. So in closing, what I want you to think about is a spotlight. We're living in a COVID-19 pandemic which is a spotlight into our world. And what happens when you shine a spotlight, you see the smoke. You see the problems that you couldn't see in the dark. And now we're coming into the light and we're coming into recognizing flaws in our system, in our society, and we're needing to find innovative ways to address them. And that contributes to anxiety, depression, suicide. And I don't know who live is, but somebody said black lives didn't create violence. Absolutely. And if that was the implication you got from my message, please, I apologize. That was not my messaging. I absolutely do not think that black lives matter is the cause of violence. You're absolutely right. It is the response to violence against a marginalized group who has been victimized by violence for really centuries. So I apologize for that. Sometimes, you know, words come out the wrong way. And I appreciate you saying it because that's the perfect example of the two of us, and I don't know who you are, but being able to close that loop before we close this webinar and me being able to clarify rather than this person leaving feeling like I think Black Lives Matters causes violence and me not feeling that way, but being perceived as feeling that way. So this person just gave me the opportunity to share another part of who I am, and then we it, that starts the dialogue, and that reduces tension, anxiety, depression, and ultimately, I mean, I don't think we were gonna get to a suicidal point on that conversation, but it does illustrate how this works, that we have to go deep and take time. So there are 
are some questions and answers that were submitted prior to the webinar. And I'm going to go ahead and respond to these as, as best that I can. And remember, this is a, this is a, you know, one hour free webinar. We, we will be doing more and more free webinars, including sending out a survey to ask for suggestions on webinars that you would like us to do. So I'm going to answer some of these questions, but I can't go into all the details about every single one of them because bullying in and of itself, the history of bullying, you know, I've done an entire day of training on bullying. So, um, but I will do the best I can in giving you some hopefully new information. So if you want to stay, you're absolutely invited to stay and we're gonna go over time on these. And if you want to leave, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate your support and your attention. And there will be lots of resources for you. Check us out on social media and keep coming on Tuesdays, last Tuesdays of the month. All right, let's get into the Q&A. How to normalize these feelings during this time, how to increase connection to providers and community supporters when they are closed, limited, too far away, only available by Zoom or other platforms? Ooh, that's a good question. And I wish I had the answer to that specifically, but the problem is that there's a lot of answers to that. If they're closed, it's really hard to connect. If they uh, have limited hours and people live far away, that's, that's an interference. So we have to do some of the things, I mean, we really have to embrace Zoom and we have to embrace online platforms for right now and know that we will be back in person at some point but we can't be back in person until we hit herd immunity and we're all vaccinated or at least out of at least 70 whatever percent of people. And it, it, it's about understanding our constraints, not necessarily making it be different because we can't make it be different. Although I will tell you this, there are very innovative millennials coming up who will invent things that make it more more realistic to be with people when you're not necessarily with people like virtual reality wow how cool we can just sit with somebody that i i feel like i'm with them but they're really across the world how to best support anxious teens to start mixing with their peers when there's a history of bullying well the first thing is addressing the history history of bullying. Whatever that bullying is needs to be addressed in a safe and open environment. And then solutions to bullying need to be put into place prior to expecting anybody to start mixing with bullies. Like I'm not going to mix with a bully if I know that they're, you know, if if we haven't had an open conversation and I don't trust and believe they're not going to bully me again, I'm out. That's an appropriate response to a dangerous behavior. And anxiety is in the brain is in service of survival. So if my brain is saying, yeah, be anxious around that person because they bullied you and they haven't really gotten over it or or changed their behavior, yeah, they're not safe to mix with. So that's a note to teachers and adults. If teens aren't willing to mix, 
there might be something else going on and it's time to dig deeper. The responses and the answers to all of these things are not quick fixes. We've been down the road to quick fixes and they don't fix anything. They just bury things. Have the suicide rates gone up across the ages or only in specific age groups? Uh, I'm not, I, I can't tell you the exact rates of what age group suicide has gone up in, but suicide has gone up across the board in the general pop during COVID-19. So um, I, I, that we could look that up and uh, see what those ages and very specific numbers are. Besides physical exercise and breathing exercises, what else can I do for my anxiety? Great question. And I love that you say the two things that everybody says all the time is, Go out and exercise and do some deep breathing. And really in the grand scheme of things, that in and of itself, it it helps to understand, and I hope you heard the part about anxiety. When you understand how anxiety manifests in the brain, then when you allow your brain to work differently, when you allow your brain to think, oh yeah, I need to interfere with my anxiety. I need to disrupt my anxiety. I need to push back against my anxiety. Then you think about deep breathing and exercise and all the other activities that you can do differently. Because it's not just about deep breathing. I could deep breathe all day long. And if I am feeling anxious, it's not going to change it because my mind is still talking to me about why I'm scared. How do we re-engage with our clients after a year like last year? in a way that's trauma-informed without making our clients relive their trauma? That's a fabulous question, too. And, well, we don't, we don't, first, we re-engage with them. First, we re-engage with them on the level that they want to re-engage in. We re-establish our relationship now that we're moving to back-in-person experiences now that we're in the middle of COVID, now that we're in year two of COVID, you know, we know a lot of different things than we did before. And then what we do is we let our clients lead. This is true across the board. We let our clients, whether they're children or adults, tell us how they want to re-engage without reliving their trauma. And we do it slowly and thoughtfully and compassionately and honestly. So we have to say things like, I know that you've experienced a lot of trauma during this past year of COVID-19. And I want to have I want us to have opportunities to really engage and talk through that so we can get to some healing. But I also don't want to have you re-experience that trauma. So I want you to think about some ways that are comfortable for you to talk to me and to engage in that conversation. What, what do you think feels good for you? Because every somebody's going to say, I just want to jump in and talk about all of it. And somebody else is going to cry and just want to cry about it with you. Everybody is different. And it, it's so important to learn that... We have to meet our clients where they are. 
and embrace them where they are and lead them out into the light and into healing on the path that they need to be on, not the path that we need to be on. How to support children and families who are struggling during a pandemic. The same way you support children and families in, in, without a pandemic, by being available, by picking up the phone and calling, by providing the things that they need, if you're capable and able to do that. So having a pandemic really doesn't change how we support people. It just means that we have to do more of it. And we also have to take care of ourselves in the process. And we have to be good resourcers. That means find our resources and share those. But there's no magic wand to fixing things during a pandemic. We're, we're learning as we go. And that's just the compassion of the situation. Um, what are the top five signs of compassion fatigue? What actions can we take to com combat vicarious trauma? Compassion fatigue, I mean, wow. There are, there's so much compassion fatigue. I don't even think there's five. I think there's like a lot more than five and people reveal them differently. But what we can do to combat vicarious trauma is to not, one, I'm just going to say it. Do not overscreen for adverse childhood experiences, especially during a particularly stressful time. Find out people's ACE scores or adverse childhood experiences and trauma in childhood by building a relationship with them and learning about that information in a real conversation and relationship, not a piece of paper that you hand to them. That is the exact recipe for triggering vicarious trauma. Every time you hand somebody an ACE screening or any screening that addresses somebody's early trauma and ask them alone to deal with it and give it back to you, stir somebody's trauma. And personally, I would say is just not a responsible way of handling such important and personal information. So I hope that... Um, answers that. And I do think that we as a society in this state in California in particular and in other places need to decide who are going to be the people who do the formalized ACE screenings. In California, it's pediatricians, but I also know lots of organizations who do ACE screenings all over the place and even they're even talking about doing it in schools. This does not seem like um, a great idea to me. I feel like we need to have a lot more conversations about that because we're going to do exactly what you said, trigger vicarious trauma. This person says, I work with children and families affected by foster care. Could you talk about ways, talk about the way trauma masks itself in behavior and or coping mechanisms? Oh yeah, we could talk about that for a year, certainly a full day of training, but Here's what I say. Behavior has meaning. All behavior tells us something about what the child is feeling or thinking or, you know, experiencing. So we need to be great observers first. And all kinds of behaviors get masked. One by development, one by trauma. They get masked by all kinds of things. 
And there are a lot of factors for kids in foster care. Another systemic organization that kind of needs to be reorganized and rethought about because of what we know neurobiologically and about relationships, why and how. I always say we should do foster care for the entire family, not just the children. We need to take the parent or parents who are not taking care of their children properly and support them in supporting their children because we just create another adverse childhood experience by ripping their children away from a AKA abusive home. We don't know that that's, that's, that can be much more traumatizing for a child than leaving them in the situation that they're in. We've all seen examples of that. I mean, over and over and over again. So we have to be really thoughtful about our processes and systems. How can we promote a safe space for staff who are experiencing the negative effects due to COVID? Same thing, be um, available emotionally, create quiet space. If you work in a very, you know, I'm thinking of a hospital and you wanna create safe space for a staff, you need to create like quiet down under stimulating space for people to get away from that. So, but the other thing is ask people, what do you need to combat these negative effects of COVID? Maybe they need help getting housing. Maybe they need help getting groceries. Maybe they need help just having a moment away from their kids. Everybody has different things. How does support and acknowledge parents' feelings without making it worse? As a home visitor, we have we talk with families and use screenings, but seems there should be an approach to talking about resilience first, ACEs, the resilience, then resilience again. Absolutely. The approach of talking is very important. And if you're a home visitor whose job is just to walk in and hand people a screening, that is not... That is counter to helping people feel better about what's going on. It's not supportive, even though it might be required. So we have to, again, find ways to make these screenings that glean certain information uh, more personalized and change our way of administering them. All right, how do we as community activists explain in easy, non-threatening terms that this current trend of me first is the threat and is the threat and stress response? It's a normal reaction by the body to protect itself at all cost. I, I agree with you 100% as a community activist that that is true. And the way that we do that is by talking about it and explaining it and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who think differently about that and say, you know, hey, if you understand the stress response system, if I feel threatened, of course, I'm going to put me first. That's appropriate. That's how our survival works. And so when I don't have to put me first, is a sign that we are doing better in our communities because we can then put we first. But until everybody's doing the we first, I have to protect the me. And so that's 
you know, it's a big conversation. That's not a one and done. What can communities do to foster resilience? Invest in early childhood. Resilience is built in the first three years of life. It's impacted and can change and can be, you know, it's malleable across the lifespan, but we get our best bang for the buck in early childhood, the first three years building the infrastructure of the brain. So that's where we need to invest in resilience. Tips for professionals who face many ghosts regardless of knowledge. Well, first, if you're a professional and you're facing many ghosts, then I'm going to tell you this. If you work in the field of trauma, it is our professional and personal responsibility to continually work on our own trauma and our own ghosts. So there is no, you know, I'm the professional, so I don't, I've already dealt with my trauma. No, your trauma is continuously being triggered and your story changes across the lifespan as we work with people who experience trauma. I myself have my own therapist who I work with and continually invest in my own therapy and trauma therapy and understanding on a personal level in order to face the ghosts because that's my expectation of clients. That's my expectation of other people's. And who would I be as a professional if I didn't expect myself to do at least the bare minimum of what I expect others to do? All right. How do you support working advocating for mental health when managing a mental health disorder yourself? Well, you think about it a lot and you decide if your mental health capacity, your mental health challenge is a good match for working and advocating for others within, in the field of mental health. And if it's not, then you find a different way to advocate. There are so many ways to advocate that we have to choose the ones that work best for us. I used to be in private practice. That was not my best way to advocate for clients. That just didn't it wasn't a good match for me because I'm a teacher, I'm an educator, I'm a trainer, I'm a consultant. I'm I, being in an office every day over and over and over again. As much as it was okay, like I love my clients, it just wasn't a match for me, you know, five days a week. And so I had to find my way, which actually I already was in education. So it was an easy, easy understanding. We just have to find our, our way of what that is. And so I would meet people who do things that you like and try them out. There's no problem. You don't have to, you know, you get a change every single day of your life. If you don't like something, do it differently. How to approach a family member you suspect is depressed or suicidal? Great question. And the straight answer is, hey, I love you. I'm worried about you. I feel like you might be struggling with some depression or maybe even some suicidal thoughts and can we sit down and have a can we sit down and talk about it for a little bit running head on with that conversation is the best thing you can do and it's terrifying so let me validate your fear and let me just encourage you to do it anyway i look forward to seeing you at the end of October. We're going to send out a survey to see if you have topics and uh, it'll probably be a poll. We'll give you some choices and let you pick if you want to come back what the topic would be. And
And if you missed it at the beginning, we're doing a free webinar the last Tuesday of every month. We do all of our work, training, consulting, coaching in person. So if once we load up our books for 2020, we start a waiting list and, and there's room for different amounts of different things. So we're already working on our 2020 schedule and have some things booked. So if you are thinking of uh, something that you would like to do with us on a professional level, please reach out to Melissa at contact at drbconnections.com. Also, uh, <clears throat> follow us on social media, the good side of social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. And watch the podcast, Delusional Optimism, with myself and Seth Creekmore. We have some fabulous guests. This week, our guest was Jane Stevens, who is the founder of Paces Connection. So her episode will be coming out in the next week or so. And uh, then Seth and I did an episode on soft parenting and understanding why we, we want to engage in soft parenting. So be looking for those, all your platforms, uh, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Music, blah, blah, blah. You can you know how to find them. And last but not least, the classes in the academy, Leave a Life Print Academy, will have CEUs for all professions available in the fall. So you'll be able to just go and do an on-demand class in a, a whole variety of topics. Some will be free, some will have a charge, but uh, anyway, that will be available in the fall of 2021 and really loaded up for 2022. So with that, thank you again. I appreciate your time that you've spent with us and go out and leave a life print. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. All content on Delusional Optimism is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of patient-client relationship. A patient-client relationship is only formed through a written contractual agreement. If you need medical or mental health care advice, you should consult your doctor or therapist or go to your nearest hospital.